This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. So who doesn't love to take some kind of online quiz these days, right? What people really love, what I really love, is a good personality test that tells us what we are all about. But how do we come up with those? Like, how do we know the right questions to ask that will tell us something about a person's personality? And I don't know about you, but I tend to get offended if I get the wrong answer on these things too, right? Last week here at work, we had someone who was making us all take a personality quiz to figure out which Looney Tunes character we were. And don't laugh. I know you're going to laugh. I turned out to be Porky Pig. And I tried to do the test several times so that I wouldn't come up with Porky Pig because other people were getting like, you know, the Roadrunner or Tweety Bird. And I thought, why am I getting Porky Pig? I wanted to be the Tasmanian Devil or, you know, something else. But turns out, no, I was Porky Pig. Now, don't tell me you haven't taken one of these before because I know most of us out there probably have. But it does beg the question, right? How do people come up with these quizzes? How do we formulate questions that tell us about our personality? Well, yes, we actually have an expert on this subject. Dr. Renee Motes is with us, a professor of philosophy, psychology, and language sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. Now, let me ask you this about these kinds of quizzes. Can we actually take tests that will tell us what our personality is like? Are they accurate? Yes, to some, to some degree, they are accurate. I mean, obviously, it's not fair to compare these tests to physical measurements, which, you know, we, it would be unfair comparison. People are just way more complex than physical objects are. Um, so, but to the extent uh, that we can, uh, what we can expect from them, yeah, they do work. Yes. So there is science behind these types of questions. How do oh, we, yeah, yeah oh, how, yeah, how yeah. do we know what kind of questions to ask? Yeah, well, that's a long history. I mean, psychologists have been working on this now for about a century to figure out how to best describe people's personalities. I think the first step is to figure out exactly which traits we want to measure in them. And that's not a trivial question because there are so many ways in which people differ vastly from one another. So it took about almost a century for uh, personality researchers to figure out what are the most informative traits. These days, most personality researchers use the they call Big Five personality trait model, which uh, so people are, are characterized in terms of five traits. Everybody gets a score. It's done somewhere in these traits. So once you have these traits, uh, you start developing a questionnaire for them. So you carefully select questions to cover thoroughly each of these traits, how a low score in that trait would look like and how a high score in these traits would look like. And then you test these questions thoroughly to see that they actually do measure these traits. Uh, and then what the ultimate trick here is, is what the tests achieve. What you, what you really can't achieve otherwise is, is, is you can compare people. These people do get numeric scores and these scores are comparable between people and it only makes sense to uh, say that somebody has a higher level on a trait, like extroversion, for example, if they really have more of that thing than most other people have. So it's all about comparison. And for, 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 for psychometricians, that's how we call these people who develop tests and use them for them to be able to, 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 to test people. They, they need to have comparable scores. There's a pretty complicated science in, in behind how to best select the kinds of questions that can be reliable. Scores, but, uh, but the basic idea is simple. We need traits and we need a good set of reliable questions to uh, ask about each of these traits. 
And then we need to score people based on their responses and compare their scores. So, Dr. Modison, when you see some of these like online personality quizzes, what do you think? Like, do you, is there some science behind those? Mostly not, I have to say. Um, mostly not. They're just fun things. So, and you know, it, it doesn't mean they're useless. Right? I don't want to say they're useless. They 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 tell you tell you something about yourself because the way you you answer, if you honestly answer these questions that uh, that are being asked. And then the answers do tell something about you. And, and, and if, if the result is that you have more of this thing than other people, then you know that you know, other people say that they have less of this thing. But, uh, but mostly they are not based on kind of rigorous scientific um, work that we expect from validated psychometric tests, which, you know, as I said, is pretty complicated science and math behind how to select the questions mm, right. and results compared you mentioned the big five kind of personality traits, right? What are those? Yeah. Okay, so the first one is neuroticism. They're also known as ocean, by the way. It's an easy thing to remember. So if if we start start naming them that way, then they start from openness, which is O, and there is conscientiousness, uh, which is C, and then it's extroversion, which is E, and then there's agreeableness, which is A, and neuroticism. So neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. I think the labels are pretty self-explanatory. And so you say all personalities will somehow fit into a combination of those five? Well, to some level, yes. I mean, obviously, people are more complex than we can describe in terms of five traits. But at the sort of broad and generally useful level, yes, we can uh, map most people and most more specific traits they can have into the into these into the systems these five traits. Are people willing to do even doing these like very specific I find personality tests online, mm-hmm. there seems to be a real interest in those these days, doesn't there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. People love these tests and they love to have feedback. So when whenever we want to do a study and we want to recruit people, so the best thing we can do is to uh, is to provide people with feedback. Then generally yeah, they do love. So it makes your job easier these days. Yeah, yeah, that, that is helpful. But I mean, it's it's, it's we we just can't do it. I mean, we, we to to uh, be credible and do the right thing, we actually have to be sure that the feedback we're giving to people is is adequate, is reliable. We have the appropriate forums against which we compare anyone respondent scores and so. So the whole math works, and we give people feedback that is kind of meaningful, and we don't oversell it and so. So it's not, it's not easy. We have to do it responsibly. So what advice do you have for people then, Dr. Modis, when they We love taking these quizzes, right? We do fun ones here at work mm-hmm. all the time. What do you have? What advice do you have for people mm-hmm. about those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. As I said, I mean, it, it's un, it would be unfair to compare these tools to uh, physical measurements. They're not lasers or something like that. So there is there's quite a lot, lot of ambiguity in the results. So the best thing you can do if you really want to learn about yourself is to do maybe the same test multiple times and do different tests. And it's quite likely that you, know, you get different, somewhat different results each time. But when you do the test multiple times, you also start seeing certain patterns emerging. And the things that kind of start emerging, they're probably really say something accurate about you. So the truth will shine through once you do this multiple times. And if you're really daring, uh, then you you might ask somebody else who knows you well, maybe your partner or your 
for a child or a parent or, or someone to do just about you as well and see what sort of feedback they would get oh. about you. So you see how other people see you. And I, I say, you know, you have to be daring because it's quite likely that you would get quite different results. And often, roughly saying about half of the time, people get different feedback based on their own reports and reports by other people. But there is really something to learn from the other people's perspectives as well. That is so interesting. Thank and you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Public Service Lines of Canada and the federal government came to a tentative deal early this morning. Now, it sounds like that's going to end the strike for about 120,000 federal public servants. That's not everybody who was on strike. So let's find out what's going on here. Mackenzie Gray with Global National joins us now from Ottawa to talk about this. Good morning. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So, Mackenzie, what happened? Tell us about this deal. Well, late night after a long weekend of negotiations between the Public Service Lines of Canada... They've come to a deal, uh, and the key sticking points seem to have really gone in favor of the federal government here, wages being the number one issue for these workers. The union had been saying, look, we haven't had a collective agreement for two years, so we're negotiating for two of the high inflation years back in 2021 and 2022. We need 13.5% increase over three years to be able to keep up with inflation. If not, basically, we're getting a pay cut. federal government came back and said, look, we had a mediator who helped us deal with the talks, They said 9% over three years is a reasonable uh, place for us to land. And that's essentially where they did land here. It was a 12% increase over over four years, I should say. So it's basically like the federal government just tacked on another year at 3% onto the deal. The union had actually wanted to keep it a three-year deal, not a four-year deal. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, that's where Mona Forche and the federal government wanted to be on wages. From work from home, the union had said, look, we want it enshrined in the collective agreement that workers have the right to work from home. That was a total non-starter for the federal government. They, as the employer, said, look, we have the right to determine where people work. And essentially, they've been able to keep that. The union said that they've made some progress on dealing with cases on an individual basis, not by a group. But that's essentially what is happening right now. The federal government has said, look, hybrid work is here to stay. We want to be able to handle that and give that flexibility for our employees. Uh, You have to come into the office two or three days a week. The rest of the time, you can work from home. So we'll have to see the details and the language of the collective agreement to figure that out. But those were the two key issues, and it certainly seems to have gone in favor of the federal government. Okay. Now, what about the number of workers who the agreement does not cover? So there's 35,000 workers who are part of the Union of Taxation Employees. They work for the CRA, and they are still out on strike. This does not impact them. So if people are calling on the last day here for the tax deadline... The CRA phone lines are still either going to be jammed or you're not going to be able to get through. The big issue there is also wages. They want a way bigger increase than what the PSAC employees have been asking for. They want a roughly a 30% increase over three years. They say, look, we're some of the lowest paid employees in the federal government, making between forty dollars and $50,000 a year, especially those call center employees. And our wages have not kept up with the wages that other departments received. And that is the case. So they are a fairly lower paid Uh, on average, um, part of the government relative to other departments. Uh, The federal government has countered with the same offer they were giving the Public Service Alliance of Canada, that 9% over three years. Uh, There have been very limited negotiations there. I think politically the focus of trying to focus on the bigger union that impacts uh, more different departments was the right move for the Liberals. And now they do have a framework to be able to bring back to the taxation employees and say, look, this union signed this. This is a reasonable deal. Let's get it done at that number. All right. Sounds good. Mackenzie, thanks for the update. Thanks, Simi. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's been a couple of days now since we heard, finally, what the provincial government is recommending for Surrey when it comes to policing. It's I stressed recommending there because it's not binding or mandatory, but boy, is it ever made to be a strong push in the direction of keeping the Surrey Police Service. Here, though, is what Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke had to say on Friday. Our decision is exactly what it was in December, that we will keep the RCMP as a police of jurisdiction. We are, we are doing exactly, exactly what the public said and what the public wants. Okay, current mayor, clearly unhappy with the situation. That, those were her comments on Friday. But the former mayor, well, he's pretty happy about the whole thing. It was Doug McCallum who originally ran for mayor on a platform of bringing SkyTrain to Surrey and getting rid of the RCMP. So let's see what he thinks about what has transpired. Doug McCallum, the former mayor, is with us now. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, good, good morning to you, Simi, and good, good morning to all your listeners today. Mr. McCallum, do you think the community in Surrey is still split on this issue? No, I, I think it's uh, fast moving um, um, towards um, our own Surrey Police Service. Um, in in the last four or five months, I, I've been out a lot in the community. I, I've got five grandkids. I've been to a lot of soccer games and and events, sporting events. Um, I spent five hours at Vizaki uh, with seven hundred thousand people walking with them, talking to people in Surrey. And I, I think um, now it's a vast majority of of Surrey residents want to see our Surrey police service and 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 want to see it very quickly because. Um, you know, the model of the RCMP um, is is not for big cities. Um, we, we have, um, we're the last big city in Canada that doesn't have our own police service. And, you know, we, we continue to see crime in our communities, even just yesterday. It's every day now, but yesterday there was another stabbing um, in, in, in Surrey. And, and so... Um, this continues, and we need to to get into community policing. So I think the report by the by the government is a super report. It's one of the best reports of my 13 years in politics that I've ever seen. Um, it solves the money problem um, that council was concerned about by providing 30 million dollars um, a year um, um, times 550 million dollars. A lot of money. That covers the cost difference um, between the RCMP and Surrey Police Service. And also it solves the recruitment, which is a major problem. The RCMP cannot recruit officers. Um, They admit that they're 1,500 officers short in the province of B.C. Um, As our Surrey Police Service um, um, can uh, recruit officers and, and very quickly. And, in fact, they have. 35 um, officers ready, trained and everything to be put on the street right, right today. But let me ask you, if if you feel that the majority of Surrey residents want the Surrey Police Service, why wasn't that reflected in the election, though? The election was still very close, and clearly Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke feels that she has a mandate to keep the RCMP. Well, I think we could talk about election another day, but, you know, I, I think the, the problem with the election was the uh, multiple splits that happened in our community. Um, I don't think it was on the um, on the police at all. It certainly was one item on the election, but I don't think it was a major one. Uh, we got elected, um, you know, four years ago, um, unanimous, and we had a unanimous uh, motion of council. So, 
Um, I, I, I don't think um, the election as such um, really reflected uh, whether the whether the police was the right police or not. But I do think that um, it is really important um, for council and um, the, um, to really have a good look at what the province is doing. It's a super deal for the residents and start thinking about the residents, not themselves. And, and I think this um, proposal put forward by the, um, by the government is a tremendous one, and it will satisfy um, the, the fact that we want to make our communities feel a lot safer by hiring more officers and uh, making it community policing. Um, and, and it's well-known community policing. You get out and be proactive. You get out in front of the problem right. before they happen. Why should the rest of the province pay for this, though? You talked about the money the province is providing. Why should BC taxpayers be paying for Surrey going back and forth on this issue? Well, I, I think um, the, the province has a responsibility for policing. And, um, in fact, it will help the other um, police jurisdictions in BC um, if um, Surrey can bring on their own officers. So, in fact, um, the money that's being provided for it will help other cities in the province because it will free up um, three or 400 RCMP officers that can go to other communities in the province. So I think it's a brilliant um, um, way to solve the problem in BC, actually. Do, do you think there, that you should have held, when you were the mayor, you should have held a referendum on this to settle this question once and for all? Do you think you should have done that? No, I don't think so. I'm not a believer in referendums. I never have been. Um, election is what the referendum to me. I've always said that um, people, if they want to make some changes, um, then you get elected to do it. You go out to the people, and if the people elect you to make those changes, then you can do them. To me, that's the referendum that I've always believed in. It's a lot, lot stronger than a referendum. Right, but your re- election was very similar in terms of voter turnout, in terms of the var- margin of victory that Brenda Locks was. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the one of one of the problems in all elections is the low turnout uh, for for cities, and and I think we need to do a lot better job to get the turnout more, so that more people get out um, and, and vote. But um, certainly in the last election, um, as I indicated earlier, um, there was you know, a very bad split all over uh, with, I think, four or five, six running for, for mayor. So um, I, right. I think um, the, the, the fact remains that um, I think council that um, is there now um, is a, a bare uh, majority that supports this, um, this uh, going back to the RCMP. And, and in fact, one of them is under investigation with conflict of interest by the ethnic um, uh, series ethnic commissioner. And so I, I think council needs to really have a good look at this proposal. It's it's the best I've seen in my 13 years. And I would uh, encourage all of them to support it. And then um, on behalf of all the people of Surrey, and, and it will make Surrey a lot safer community to live, play and work in. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you very much, Simi. Thank you to your listeners for listening. This is Mornings with Simi. 
One of the ways in which the province, as you've heard, is encouraging Surrey to stick with its own police force is by sweetening the pot, so to speak, offering to help them defray the cost of the transition. And that was something that up until Friday, the government had kind of steadfastly refused to do. And you know what? It's not sitting well with other cities in Metro Vancouver. So let's find out why that is. Daniel Fontaine is with us now, Councillor for the New West Progressives in New Westminster. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Simi. Now, why are you raising concerns about this? Well, why I'm concerned is, I mean, we have a problem here, a made in Surrey problem that now has a made in Victoria bailout of $150 million. And I think if you live in Fort St. John or Prince George, you have to be asking yourself this morning why you're paying for a problem that was created in Surrey and should be fixed by Surrey. We have municipal police forces across Metro Vancouver who are looking for resources. Our, our municipal police forces are strained. We're under pressure. We're facing, you know, a gang violence, uh, acts of violent crime. And yet we saw on Friday uh, what I thought was going to be simply a decision by the province to determine whether or not we were going to move forward with SPS. And instead, $150 million was put on the table for the Surrey Police Force, and nothing was put on the table for other mun- municipal police forces in Metro Vancouver. Now, didn't other municipalities, didn't every municipality in the province just get a chunk of money from the surplus? Oh, they certainly did. But what the minister uh, fails to point out is that Surrey also got a fairly large chunk of that $1 billion. In fact, I believe Surrey received, I think, 80 or $90 million for which they've lowered their uh, property taxes down from 17 to 12%. So, yes, the, the, the minister is correct that all the cities did get some funding from the province as part of the Growing Communities Fund, but so did Surrey. So Surrey's getting an additional $150 million to resolve a problem that was created in Surrey and should be fixed by the citizens of Surrey. And now other municipalities, like the city of New Westminster and other communities, I see Langley's weighing in as well. And we're asking ourselves, why is it that the province has chosen to provide special provisions for policing in Surrey when other communities, in particular in Metro Vancouver, are facing such significant challenges, and there's no money on the table for us. It was New Westminster Police, was that municipal force, impacted by this whole policing in Surrey situation? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Simi, just a report out last week indicated that I believe 15 police officers have been scooped up by the Surrey Police Service. So now we're 15 police officers short as a result of it. And I hear a lot about this coming out from the province around concerns around Uh, poaching, etc. Well, we have the same issue happening, but in reverse. So we are also facing these issues. And and if we had the resources to be able to ensure that our police force was also competitive and could, could, uh, you know, invest in our our force, we might be able to assist in keeping retention and maybe recruiting additional police officers. So we have been impacted as well, yet we're not receiving any of the compensation that the province is putting on the table. We're simply uh, uh, facing uh, the prospect of losing even more police officers in the months to come. What do you think should have happened here? Well, I think what the province should have done is if they they felt that it was important and critical for them to put those funds onto the table, they should have also uh, spoken with other municipal police forces uh, like New Westminster and Delta and Port Moody and other, other communities and put some funding on the table to assist those police forces as well. We know that there is, like I said, rampant crime and and, and public disorder on the streets right now. Everyone is facing the same situation. And I think if we're talking about equity and being fair and making sure that all communities are treated equally, uh, I'm right across, I'm overlooking the city of Surrey across the Fraser River in a community that's been bailed out 
to the tune of $150 million by provincial taxpayers. And on this side of the river, New Westminster, our police force is getting nothing from the province of British Columbia compared to what Surrey's just received. I think that would have been a fair approach. And it also would have been more well received by all the the police uh, detachments throughout Metro Vancouver, as opposed to how I think it will be received in the weeks to come. All right. Listen, Councillor Fontaine, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. We have only a redacted report, as you saw. I have only gotten that within the last very short time, like literally 20 minutes ago. Okay, so that's Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke on Friday. Obviously, this morning we're kind of breaking down, getting all the different reaction to the whole Surrey policing situation. So we thought, let's talk about some of the things that have been said since the announcement was made. So joining us now to break this down for us is Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Can we start with what we just heard Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke there say? Does Surrey have the full 500-page report? Surrey has the uh, they have the uh, the report. In fact, the the mayor was asked for and was given a technical briefing at six o'clock uh, the the day before the report was released, uh, and then the entire council was given a um, um, a technical briefing on the report, also prior to that, uh, after that uh, briefing that the mayor had. Uh, the report that uh, was released, um, the redactions that uh, are referred to are redactions that are actually uh, confidential uh, RCMP information that I am not able to release unless the RCMP approve it to, to be released, and the same with the Surrey Police Service. Uh, the redacted information deals with confidential staffing information and, in fact, was part of the uh, submission from the RCMP uh, that they're required to do uh, in the transition plan, along with the City of Surrey uh, and their plan that uh, formed the basis uh, from which the uh, the analysis took place. Okay, so are you saying that Surrey does have all of the information? They have the report, um, and we have also indicated to them that to my staff uh, the, uh, that uh, they will uh, sit down with them and go through an unredacted version of the report with them. Uh, so the uh, you know no one's hiding any information uh, from the city of Surrey. Okay, what about the reaction that we have heard from other municipalities about this incentive money? You were very opposed to this right up until we heard the announcement on Friday. What changed? Actually, uh, that's not correct. Uh, I have been clear right from the beginning that there would be no money available to transition back to the RCMP. Uh, and that's the question that I have always, uh, that I have always been asked. Um, what, I, what took place on Friday was my announcement around the decision on the plan that uh, the city of Surrey and the RCMP put forward as to how they would transition back. Uh, my responsibility as minister is to make a determination, a, a decision as to whether that, uh, that plan would protect public safety uh, for the transition for the city of Surrey, but also my responsibility uh, for the rest of the province. The determination was that it wouldn't. Uh, knowing that, um, I also said, here's the recommended option, here's the recommended path forward, which is to continue with the Surrey Police transition uh, to the Surrey Police Service. And we also had uh, an analysis done on the cost differential between the, Surrey RCMP, between the Surrey RCMP and the Surrey Police Service, which the city of Surrey said was a, a concern to them and one of the reasons why they wanted to transition back. 
we had work done by Deloitte, which confirmed the city's numbers of about $30 million a year. And knowing that this is not the preferred option, but in fact, for the city, but would in our view, be the right approach is we said, look, we're prepared to sit down with you uh, and ensure that these costs aren't borne uh, by your residents or your businesses. And I gave an example that, you know, if the issue is $30 million a year, uh, and if you were looking at a uh, five-year transition, that's about $150 million. And on top of that, the $72 million in severance pay, which the city was going to take out of the, 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 the $90 million the province gave them along with other local governments to spend on local infrastructure because of going, there'd be a growing community, they would also have that money as well. Okay, so are, are you saying it's not $150 million? Like, What exactly is the province offering net total here to Surrey to get this done? No, that's, that would be, that's a discussion that takes place between the province and the city of Surrey. Uh, and, that, and, and we've indicated a willingness to sit down with the city of Surrey uh, and to, to say, look, we understand that, you know, you're, that these costs, you're concerned about these costs, and we're prepared to sit down and ensure uh, that, uh, that they're not borne by the by the, uh, the the taxpayers of the city, either the residents or the or the businesses, and you know that's the example I used. If it's a if it's a for example a five year transition, that uh, that would be about 150 million dollars. But that's something we need to discuss with the city of Surrey. Okay, and what about the concern then from other municipalities who say, well, well listen, we have policing costs too that we would like some help with. Surrey is the largest detachment, RCMP detachment in the entire province. Um, and any change there impacts other communities, um, and, one, and particularly when it comes to restaffing. So, for example, um, we've just invested uh, $230 million to fill 277 hard vacancies in small communities and rural communities um, across British Columbia. Where are those offices going to come from? Um, they can't, all of a sudden, you can't just suddenly put everything into into to Surrey in terms of a, of a transition because that has an impact. It has an impact on the provincial uh, policing line. It would have an impact on other RCMP communities that are, high, are growing and want to hire, um, you know, new officers to meet their uh, needs in their communities. You have a tw- on average about 20% vacancies in um, uh, many detachments across the province. So it, it has a significant, it has a potential for a significant impact. That's, that's the kind of work that was done in the analysis um, of the plan that had been put forward by the city of Surrey and the RCMP in terms of how they would transition. And the determination from uh, the director of police services in my ministry is this would not, uh, the, the transition plan would not ensure, um, you know, a, a public safety. And the result is, the recommendation to me is not to approve, and that's on that basis the decision's been made. So are you concerned at all about Mayor Brenda Locke's kind of strong words on this, and she was saying it's all political? Look, I understand that the, uh, the, mayor's, uh, the, mayor, the mayor's position, and I understand the mayor's frustration. Um, my job as Solicitor General is to ensure uh, public safety in the city of Surrey and the rest of the province. And the, the recommendation uh, that I made on Friday is a path forward to be able to do that, to ensure public safety in Surrey and the rest of the province, and an acknowledgement uh, to the city of Surrey that, yes, there are some additional costs, and the province is prepared to sit down to ensure those costs aren't borne by uh, the residents uh, or the business taxpayers in the city of Surrey. Thank you very much for your time this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of talk this morning and breaking down kind of what is happening with Surrey policing. We have heard from all sides on this issue. We talked to former Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, who essentially got this rolling when he was elected. And then we spoke as well to other communities that are concerned from newest councillor Daniel Fontaine, who says, hey, we would like some of this, you know, policing money that Surrey is also getting for their incentive. And we spoke with Minister Mike Farnworth, who ultimately presented the decision on Friday. Uh, saying he believes this is the best plan for Surrey to move forward. But was there another way here? Like, clearly not everybody feels not happy with this situation. Joining us now is Kevin Falk, a leader of the opposition for BC United. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Simi? I'm good, thank you. Do you think there was a, a better way to do this? Oh, good Lord, yes. Look, let's let's just sort of look at the context here. I mean, for over four years, We've had total uncertainty and confusion in the city of Surrey, the second largest city in our province. Um, you know, you've, you've got a government that right from the outset should have been very clear about if they're going to go ahead with this to make it really clear that all the information has to be out there very transparently so the public knows exactly what the trade-offs are for moving forward. Um, and I think that that clarity would have been very, very helpful. And now, finally, after all of this indecision, new election, now a different direction, and people wondering what the heck is going on, there was finally at least a feeling that, okay, finally the government's going to you know, put on its big boy pants and actually make a decision here. And unfortunately, we got kind of a decision, but it's actually created more uncertainty. And, and here's what frustrates me. I'm the leader of the opposition. I was actually really looking forward to seeing the it, the, the numbers and the rationale so that we could all look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's the right decision or that's the wrong decision. But instead, they redacted 80% of the report. And worse than that, uh, it, according to the mayor of Surrey, she didn't even get a copy of the report until they were already well into their uh, to their press conference. And so, um, you know, where are we at? Well, now we're at a situation where nobody knows on which basis uh, their recommendation is being made. And it's a very weak recommendation because it also says you can go back to the old police force if you want. Uh, we've now got a situation where other municipalities have said, I mean, sorry, just before I say that, the one consistent thing the NDP and Mike Farnworth have been very consistent about is there is going to be no provincial money going into this decision of the of the community of Surrey. And then suddenly at the uh, announcement, he's talking about $150 million of provincial tax dollars going to the community of Surrey. Now, all the other municipalities that have municipal police forces, of course, are now saying, well, hang on a second. If you're going to do that in Surrey, what about us? We've got lots of challenges here too. So I think that that's all complicated this big, enormous mess and left us in a situation that uh, I, I think is just awful for public safety. Right. Okay. Let me just backtrack here a little bit because we've heard from the minister that the, the mayor did get a full briefing on this report the night, the day before. And so the, she did have that report and she did know she got a technical briefing on that, as did the councillors on that. But it, was this not as presented in their opinion, the best option then i mean they are going out and saying we think this is what you should do yeah but why not just do it then i mean if that's truly what they think then just do it and end the agony that the community is going through um you know one of the things that actually did come out in that report that i don't know if, if the media caught that but i i found rather shocking is the fact that there are now 1500 police vacancies in bc which is almost 10 percent of the entire provincial police force complement and that's double the national vacancy rate. So you can see why we've got some 
crime problems under this NDP government. They've allowed these vacancies to grow over the last six years uh, to the point where we're facing facing this kind of a problem. But look, um, I think the public was owed just a clear decision, not more plain politics. I get some people have described it, oh, wasn't that just such great politicking? You know, they just did it so masterfully in all this. Well, this isn't the time for politicking, quite, quite frankly. I mean, we're talking about the second largest community being in a state of crisis uh, when it comes to public safety, not because police aren't doing their job, because they do a great job, but because there's been so much political confusion over what kind of police force and what kind of uniform they're going to wear. And I just think clarity was called for, and instead they got more murkiness. Okay, so what do you think Surrey should do? Well, the the challenge I'm faced with is probably the challenge all Surrey residents are, are faced with right now. They don't know because we don't have any information. Um, you know, the... It, it, the uh, they they profess that they've given the mayor a technical briefing, but I'm told, at least I've heard, that the mayor is complaining about the fact that the uh, technical briefing didn't include all the redacted information that was in that report. So, you know, again, we're left without just basic information. Um, you know, this the Canadian Association of Journalists has quite correctly called this NDP government the most secretive in Canada. They actually gave them award an award for their secrecy, and I just think. What What is so secret that we can't have plain information in front of the public to be able to help us make a decision? Right. We did I, ask I'm, about that this morning, and we were told that that was RCMP like information provided to them so they couldn't make it public unless the RCMP says they can make it public. Well, then I, my message to the RCMP, get that information and make it public, because frankly, we're not being helped when we cannot make a decision because we haven't got any of the facts in front of us. And I, I just find that extremely frustrating. And I can't believe that the RCMP uh, would have required that 80% of the report re- be redacted. I'm extremely skeptical that that's the case. Okay, so then what is your message to Surrey residents here? Well, my message to Surrey residents is you deserve a clear decision. We've got to end the uncertainty. And, and I, I, I'm, I apologize that the government hasn't seen fit to share information. So none of us, including the opposition, the media, and the public of Surrey are unable to understand the rationale or the basis for which a decision should be made. And, and I think that's, that's extremely unfortunate. And I think the government owes the public, the media and the opposition, clarity around why it is they're making a, a, at least a, a soft recommendation to go forward. And that may be the right recommendation. But my goodness, put the information out there. Give people comfort uh, that the decision they're making is the right one. And then explain why, after spending four and a half years saying that you're not going to put any provincial dollars into it, you're now deciding to do so. And what does that mean in terms of the precedent you're setting for all the other municipalities that are facing 9% of their own uh, police forces being understaffed? All right, well, thanks so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, there is an update this morning about this whole situation with the varsity football program at Simon Fraser University. The fight continues, and now it's ramping up, so let's find out how. Jim Mullen joins us, the president of Football Canada. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Timmy. How are you? I am good, thank you. So what's going on? I understand this is getting taken to the next level here. That's right. We're off to court, uh, courtroom 55, like right on the 55-yard line in the center of the field. Um, the injunction, uh, the application for it will be uh, heard today. Uh, originally, this was scheduled for May the 3rd, uh, but uh, with the amount of information that's uh, in this case, uh, both sides needed to uh, have a whole day to go through it. Hopefully, by the end of the day, 
we will know whether or not uh, the injunction is granted. And if it is, uh, then the football program uh, would be restored to its uh, former glory at, uh, at Simon Fraser to, uh, to the status of April the 3rd, the day prior to uh, when uh, the announcement came out that the program was cancelled. Uh, I would assume that if the injunction is also granted that uh, there would be a number of uh, points that the university would have to follow to ensure that the uh, team is functioning. Uh, I I believe that right now trust is at an all-time low between the alumni group, the players, versus the the university. And and even if there's a a successful outcome for the varsity football team, I think it's a long way back. Right. How soon could you get a decision, though? Uh, By the end of the day today. Oh, really? It's also possible that the uh, uh, court could rest on this and take a couple of days to, to work over this. There is a sense of urgency uh, around this file simply because these uh, young men need to uh, determine what their educational and football futures are. Uh, and uh, most of the scholarship money out there uh, with the other 27 Canadian teams and the teams in the NCAA is mainly used up. So uh, the opportunities are really slim because of the timing of this announcement. And uh, the team needs to, to have the opportunity to move on, get back on the field, get training, and get focused on uh, an independent schedule. Okay, and on what basis are you hoping to have this injunction granted? What is the argument here? This is basically contract law and a breach of contract where the university has sent their coaches out into the field uh, to recruit uh, players for a four-year term, uh, and the four-year term uh, meaning from the time you enter university to the time you graduate, because it is an athletic scholarship. So uh, with the suspension of the uh, football program, the university cannot satisfy the athletic portion uh, of the scholarship. That's one of the main attractants for the uh, for the. Uh, uh, athlete to uh, come to the university is to uh, pursue uh, football development uh, in this case. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, we hope that as we go through the process, uh, we also uh, address the lack of consultation. Actually, there was zero consultation uh, leading into the decision, and that is uh, attached to the breach of contract. Okay, Jim, has anything like this ever been attempted before? Not in Canada. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there have been um, court cases in the United States uh, with with, uh, some programs that have been challenged, but certainly not in Canada. And if this were to go against the uh, university, I would think there would be a rather nasty call uh, coming out of the Indianapolis offices of the NCAA uh, towards uh, Simon Fraser. That, that there could be a domino effect uh, throughout the NCAA if, uh, if this injunction is granted. Okay. Have any student athletes received other offers? Like, do they have other options at this point that you know of? Well, one of the things that's been great about this process is that the uh, university coaches, the junior coaches across Canada, put a moratorium on announcing any transfers of players from. Uh, one school to another. Uh, however, we, you know, we have to be realistic about this. These kids are scrambling right now, and they are having discussions 
uh, with coaches in, in, in other places. It, it's inevitable. I'm sure Blake Nill's phone was ringing off the hook over at UBC as soon as this announcement came down. But, but in terms of solidarity throughout the football community, everybody's putting a cap on it until we see what the result of this uh, court hearing is. Okay, so that is going on today. Uh, hopefully you'll get an, some kind of you know, decision happening. Has the support continued, Jim, for the last month? You, you know, it was beginning of April where this happened. It's, has it just been constant? Honestly, I've been shocked and amazed uh, in terms of uh, the support behind uh, this team, uh, how it's been uh, something that's been picked up nationally how uh, mayors have responded to it throughout the region. And my goodness, uh, an NDP MP, uh, Peter Julian, stood up, and Carrie Lynn Finley from the Conservative Party stood up with member statements to support the football team. When does Orange ever agree with Blue in Ottawa? They can agree on the, the red leaves in that state. That, those are the two colors that come together to support the red, I think. I thought the same thing when I saw that story. I was like, well, there's something that you would never normally see is those two agreeing on this. So it tells you what's going on. Okay, we're going to keep up to date. Let us know what happens, Jim. I certainly will. Thanks for the time, Simi.